0: Morning. So, as Pastor Luke mentioned, um, you know we've been uh, in a we've been talking for a long time the last five weeks or so about this season that we're in, and a season called Lent. And what is what is Lent? Well, Lent is this period of time, typically forty days between Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Some some would say even Palm Sunday, where uh, where we're in like this. We're we're in a period of intentional preparation, expectation, anticipation, essentially looking, looking forward to what is coming. And that thing that is coming is the 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 celebration of Easter Sunday. Um and our Lenten series has been we, we titled it Divine Interruption, the ways in which God strategically Graciously, um, sometimes gently, and sometimes like a two by four in the face, right, interrupts the natural rhythms. What what we have become natural rhythms for our lives, uh, in order to kind of shake us out of the apathy that keeps us just continually moving in one direction without without always taking stock of or stopping to see. Stopping to hear, stopping to feel the things that are around us, and uh, and in some ways, the gospel that, that is the that is a microcosm um, communication of the gospel. Right, our lives are going this way. Right, the work of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus interrupts everything. And so um, next Sunday, next Easter, uh, on Easter Sunday when you come, um, we'll be keeping with the same theme that we have been all lent, the way that God interrupts kind of the natural rhythms of our lives. Um, And we're talking about how uh, on Easter Sunday, what we celebrate really is the way that Jesus interrupts our death. The thing that we kind of all expect, the thing that we all like, we're all kind of pointing to. Um, in, an, in an existential type of way, um, pointing towards the end of life while well, Jesus comes and the work of Jesus, um, the work of the Holy Spirit to resurrect Jesus from the dead interrupts everything that death brings in our lives. Um, Somewhat of the, I don't know if it's the caveat uh, or the nuance of, of um, of celebrating on Easter, which is the you know the, the pinnacle for faith and belief, the ultimate celebration of the Christian faith, and some and and I, I contend the ultimate celebration for all of humanity. Okay? In order to get to that ultimate celebration, you have to uh, we have to like understand what it took for the circumstances of that day of the empty tomb to exist. And so we talk about Palm Sunday today. We're gonna we're gonna um, experience. Some would say we're gonna celebrate Good Friday. Seems strange to say that, right? But we're gonna we're, we'll experience Good Friday on uh, this coming Friday. Talk about what what really is so good about what happened on that Friday, and what actually what actually did happen, and why in the world would it matter to you ever? What happened there? So we've laid some palms out for you. There's some palms in the center aisle. There's palms all over the place. Um, I um, I asked uh, I asked Jessica to order order palms, um, and she asked me how many, and I said I don't know. However many we ordered last year, and I forgot to write down that last year we ordered too many. And so, uh, they're everywhere in the building. Um, go ahead and take a poem with you when you leave today, okay? It is your parting gift on Palm Sunday uh, to take a poem. But we'll talk about what is so significant about the palms on Palm Sunday, all right? Um, what happened on Palm Sunday? Why is it important? Where do we find ourselves in the story of Jesus this week. Um, Let's read about the the instance that we are kind of like celebrating or talking about today in the Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. Now, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. The Bible broken up into two different sections, the Old Testament, which is in the front of the book, and the New Testament, which is generally in the back And the very first book of the New Testament is called Matthew. And it's one man's account of the ministry and life of Jesus. And he tells us this particular story. So, well, let's just read this and then we'll talk about it. Matthew chapter 21. As they... this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. The prophet said, Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others Cut branches from the trees, cut branches from the trees, and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them uh, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, "This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee." Okay, so if you just read that in isolation, um, it may not, it may, it may be difficult to tie that into kind of like the context of everything that is happening, kind of behind the words here, but also everything that will happen coming forward. And you'll, you may ask the question like, "Well," There's a pretty large dichotomy in response of the people from Palm Sunday, where it looks like they're celebrating his arrival in Jerusalem, right? Like everyone's excited that Jesus is coming into the holy city of Jerusalem. And then what happens on Friday, right? Some five or six, five days later, where Jesus is being crucified on a Roman cross. Like what in the world, how, how, what is the, the, the difference, the massive difference between those two experiences. Where do we find ourselves in the story of Jesus at this point? Well, if we read the Gospels, you don't even have to read them very closely. I just have to do a a real basic reading of them. You'll see that there are several points along the way where Jesus is really super honest with his followers. He's honest with them and he doesn't try to protect them from the reality that his life, his mission, his ministry is to eventually enter into Jerusalem, the holiest of holy cities for the Jewish people, and that when he enters Jerusalem, it will be his last time to enter, and then a few things will happen. He's going to be betrayed by, I'm going to be betrayed by you guys. Right? And of course, they all argued with him. Well, we would never do that until they did. Right? And then he says, then I'm going to be arrested. The Romans are going to arrest me. And then I'm going to be tried. And I'm going to be found guilty. And they're going to crucify me. And then he says, he even goes so far as to say, but, but don't worry. On the third day, I'm going to rise again. And he does this not, not long Right, Not long before or not far away from this moment that we just read about him coming into the holy city, about him coming into Jerusalem. So it's not like the disciples somehow, oh, he said it so long ago what was going to happen. There's no possible way that I could remember it. In fact, if you look just backward in chapter 21 of Matthew, if you look back at just chapter tw- the end of chapter 20, verse 17, and following now as jesus was going up to jerusalem he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them we're going up to jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and they will condemn him to death and they will turn him over to the gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and on the 3rd day he will be raised to life Jesus was always very, very, very clear about what his life and ministry and purpose and direction was going to be. But he also, in the midst of that ministry and in the midst of his, his, that three years of work that he was doing, was gathering around him, right, a fairly large crowd of people, we talk about uh, a lot the twelve disciples, right? Um, but we we don't often kind of like connect the fact that there's almost always a large crowd that is listening to Jesus, right? The large crowd followed him into the city of Jerusalem. Here we see instances in the gospel where all of all of a sudden there's a large crowd of. Five thousand men there, right, and they're hungry. And Jesus is asking the disciples, "Hey, how are you going to feed them? Well, we have these loaves and fishes, right?" Or in the in um, early accounts of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus sits down and teaches this large section of of teaching, like we often get this sense or this like idea that Jesus is sitting in front of these twelve guys around a campfire, right. Teaching them all these lessons and then pushing them out. But we always often see that Jesus had an inner circle of three, and then he had a circle of 12 disciples, and then, he, and then he had 72, right, that he sent out. And then there's larger crowds, there's five, there's thousands of people who are consistently chasing Jesus around the Holy Land to see who is this guy? What is he going to do next? What is the next thing that we're going to see as we're following him? Is he going to heal this person? Is he going to do this miracle? Is he going to challenge the Romans here? Is he going to challenge the religious leaders there? And so so Jesus was building for himself a pretty significant reputation. Not just with those who really loved Jesus and wanted to be around him, but also with those who saw Jesus as a rising threat to Roman government. You see, in the in the Roman Empire, um, there was one ruler. There was one. We talked about this last week about what a lord was, right? but a person who, who exerted ultimate or supreme control or authority over an area. There was, one, there was one Lord, and that one ruler and that one Lord, and then sometimes they even referred to him as God, was not Jesus or was not, was not God the Father as as the Jews would have known him, but it was Caesar, the ruler of the Roman government, the ruler of the Roman Empire. And so every single time, someone asked Jesus, are you the Lord? Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of God? It was not just in that time, a theological statement like, oh, he's this spiritual figurehead. It was a, it was a deeply subversive and controversial political statement that this this person, this enigmatic figure who was doing all these incredible things and teaching with such authority, gathering a super large crowd around him and they were describing him or declaring that he, in fact, was Lord. He, in fact, was ruler. He, in fact, was the Messiah, the Anointed One and not... Caesar, he was garnering for himself quite a bit of attention that um, he was not always fond of or that was not always, that was not always positive. And so in this, in this last week, Jesus, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, right? He told his, his disciples, okay, let's set our course for Jerusalem for that is why I've come, right? And they get to this moment and this large crowd of people who had been declaring for years, really, this is the Lord, this is the Messiah, this is the guy, this is the guy, this is the guy, this is our ruler and leader, was now marching into the capital city of the Israelite people. It looked strangely, or not so strangely, like a revolt was about to happen. Here is this guy, who everyone's been declaring as is the, is the, the, is the Messiah, the, the, the ruler of the Jewish nation. He's got this super large crowd, and now he's marching into the holy city. He's marching into the capital city. We all know the storylines, right? You can, you can imagine a, a, a movie being made in modern times, right, about that, right? You take over the capital city, you march into it, you declare, I'm the new ruler here, right? And you, you set up shop as the ruler of the empire. And so what was the crowd's response to Jesus coming in to the city? They were ecstatic, right? They were excited, our time has finally come. They were, they were proclaiming, they were, they, were, they were shouting Hosanna, which is a, uh, is a Jewish way of saying um, uh, save, or like Savior, or you have saved us, or save us they were proclaiming they were they were proclaiming the saving nature of Jesus they were it says that they were waving branches around they were they were making they were laying out the proverbial red carpet of palm branches for him to walk down now it's interesting to think well why is it just just this just something like that was um that was specific to their culture or their time? And the answer is yes, it it was. You see, there was a time where Israel um, actually did have another king, right? It wasn't Jesus. Um, And the most famous king of Israel, right, outside of Jesus is who? David, right? King David, right? And David was a military ruler and he was a political ruler, right? And he he had... um, he protected the nation of Israel at war with with um, against armies who would come to try and like uh, overrun the Holy Land or destroy the Israelite people. And so David would regularly go to war, and then David would come back from war, and he would go to war, and then he would come back from war again, and he would go to war again. Right, and 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 every time that David came back from war victorious, the people of the Israelite nation, specifically the people in Jerusalem, would line the streets, would line the territories outside of the holy city. And as the victorious king came home from winning victory, um, winning the battle, they would stand in procession and, and proclaim things like, Hosanna, you have saved us thank you and they would grab they would grab um, palm branches right and they would wave them back and forth and it became a symbolic way to celebrate the victory of the king as he was coming back to the city after defeating the people that were setting out to destroy the Israelite people and so as jesus was coming back in to the city or jesus was coming into the city right the israelite people were like this is just like when king david set out into battle destroyed our enemies and then came back to the city and we are here to celebrate this new david this new king this new messiah he has finally come and we will finally be out from under the yoke of the Roman rulers. Now, to make matters even more significant and symbolic, right? There was there is a specific time of year that is exceptionally important to Jewish people. It's like It's like our Easter, right? This time of year, exceptionally important to Christians. But the time frame that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem was a a Jewish holiday called Passover. And, And Passover was the remembrance, right? It was the memory, the remembrance and the celebration from the moment that Jews declare was the greatest sign of God's victory and advocacy for them against oppression. So for hundreds of years, the Jewish people were enslaved in Egypt, right? Following Joseph's rule, way back in the end of the book of Genesis. And, and when it was time for the Israelites to be set free from that captivity, right? God sent a message through through Moses, tell the people to take a lamb, to slaughter it, rub the blood on the doorposts of their home. I'm going to send the angel of death upon the Egyptians, right? They're gonna kill, all, the angel of death will kill all the firstborn except for those who have the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their home, right? And then the Egyptians will finally be like, hey, look, God is in this thing, we don't want anything to do with these israelite people anymore leave finally like we let you go whatever and so like and this was the biggest moment right in israelite history where where they recognized that god was essential god essentially god's on our side god is with us god is god is delivering us by the blood of the lamb from this oppression from this slavery that we are under and that we are in and so every year they would celebrate once again what happened on passover and they would they would share a meal right and they would tell the story to their kids right they would make sure that this that the that the history of god delivering his people was always told and always passed down and When did Jesus come into Jerusalem? Jesus came into Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover. So it was this time where the Jewish people were already like shaking with anticipation to celebrate the moment that God had brought them victory and that God had brought them freedom from the yoke of slavery. And now here is this guy who is doing all of these miracles Teaching with authority, gathering a large crowd, even declaring himself that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. It's during Passover already. He's coming into the holy city. This must be the moment. This must be the time that finally we are free from slavery to Roman occupation. It made sense, right? It made good sense. Except, except Jesus was always very, very clear. Was always exceedingly clear that his mission was much different. Because while the people had expected that Jesus would march into the holy city, declare the Romans like evicted through the power of the Messiah, set himself up on the throne as ruler, right? And that's what we talked about last week, right? James and John's mom came to Jesus and been like, hey, do you mind if my two sons, one of has a seat on your right and one has a seat on your left when you establish yourself in your kingdom? Being like, hey, can, can they be kind of like in charge next to you? Right? There was the expectation that Jesus That that Jesus was coming in, in the same way that David came in, in victorious battle over those who had oppressed the people. But, like we read, Jesus has always been very clear that His his throne, the throne that He would sit on, was not a throne that was in Jerusalem. (laughs) that his mission was different, that the slavery that he came to free people from was not a slavery to the Egyptians, was not a slavery to the Romans, but was a slavery to our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, the darkness that is seeped into every single part of our Soul that he was he was coming to save those who were sinners, not just the politically righteous. And he tried to get this point across to his disciples tons of times. Hey, look, no, I'm gonna come in like I'm actually gonna be betrayed and, and tried and arrested. I'm gonna lose the political fight. I'm not gonna win that fight. They're going to crucify me. They're going to kill me. But take heart. What what they think is the end, what the world thinks is the end will not be the end. The, the reality is, is like how could Jesus be so clear about who he was and what he came to do, but the people be so clear. Confused. I often ask that. I often ask myself that question, right? Like when, when life is not really going the way that I expected it to go. When, when the direction of life, or the direction even even more specific, less generally than life, but maybe the direction of a relationship, or the direction of my uh, of a job, or the direction of like a a calling the direction of something that's important like why is this not going the way that i expected it to go usually in moments of extraordinary despair maybe not even despair but just stress or when 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 we feel like the the story that we have that we desire this thing to take when it begins to come off the rails, we grab onto Jesus and we plead for him to be the savior of our story that manages and maintains the expectations that we have set. Lord, I had this plan and I had this direction and I knew that this is what I wanted it to be like and I knew this is how it was supposed to go And it's not going that way anymore. I need you to come and set the train back on the tracks that takes it to the destination that I had set in my own mind long ago. Never stopping to consider whether or not that's the direction that God wanted us to go anyway. Or that's the expectation or the destination or the target that God had decided. See, the reality is that we often are in our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with God in general, have expectations of Him that sometimes exist outside of who He actually is or what He actually desires to do in our lives. Can you imagine that? Does that sound like a foreign concept to you? There are, see, because there are lots of ways that sometimes we, sometimes unwittingly, or or conscious like sometimes consciously and sometimes subconsciously some expectations that we hold about Jesus himself or our relationship with Jesus that if we hold on to them too tightly can become very destructive or damaging for us in our life in general but certainly our relationship with him now this is certainly not a comprehensive list right and it's not necessarily a um, extraordinary. I'm not using extraordinarily theological terms here, but we have some common expectations of Jesus that I think we need to recognize, right? And and wrestle with, and see if maybe you recognize any of them in your own relationship with Jesus, right? So, what are some common expectations or titles that we have for Jesus? Well, we have an expectation of Jesus that he's like, um, I. I the only way I know how to say it is like, it's hype man, Jesus. Like Jesus is our hype man. Like he's eternally permissive of all the decisions, choices, or things that make you feel good. Is often considered to be uh, why Jesus is considered to be like loving or accepting or non-judgmental. We might also call this like ethical or moral yes-man Jesus. All of the decisions that you make, all of the things that you want, all of the things that make you feel good, Jesus wants you to do them. And as long as you're doing them, right? He, because he's so loving, and because he's not judgmental, he's he's not ever going to point out that sometimes the decisions that we make are actually pretty painful and destructive. But he couldn't possibly ever say no to you. Jesus wouldn't ever say, hey, don't do that, because that's not loving, right? And Jesus is not judgmental. So, so he would never say no or he would never say don't but what often happens is what what we've been told is that every time someone says no to us or every every time someone says you're doing that and you shouldn't be well that's pretty judgmental of you to say you can't you can't say that and look maybe maybe you have an argument if i come up to you Right, and say, hey man, you really shouldn't be wearing a blue shirt and tan pants. That's not right. And then you look at me and like, well, you're doing the exact same thing, right? Why is it okay? Why, Why can we get to a place of understanding that when Jesus says no or don't, it is eternally and significantly different than maybe when I say, hey, maybe no or don't right because i can only respond to something or cast judgment upon something out of a um intrinsically sinful self right so my judgment is marred by my own sin jesus judgment is not marred by any sin whatsoever right the base of his being is love for you and love for me and love for all of the creation, right? And so when Jesus says, hey, don't do that, he's saying, don't hurt yourself. I want you to listen to me really quick, really clearly. Jesus will not be the hype man for decisions that bring pain and destruction in your life. If you expect him to just be like, yeah, man, just go for it all the time. As long as you're sincere, it doesn't matter what you do or what you believe or how you act. As long as you do it in a sincere way, that's false. And Jesus actually will bring judgment upon the things that we do and the things that we say, and the way that we love, and the ways that we don't love. Because that's his job, and he's the only one that can do it. And so we if we have this expectation that Jesus is never going to call us out, right that the words of Jesus, that the actions of Jesus, that the example of Jesus that the life of Jesus is never going to come into conflict with what I'm actually doing. If we have that expectation, we're going to be sorely, sorely disappointed. Another common expectation that we um, have of Jesus is um, like genie in a bottle, Jesus. Or genie in the Bible, I guess you could call it, since he's not actually in a bottle, right? Right? Genie in the Bible. You can trademark that one. Alright, put that on a t-shirt. Okay? Jesus is not genie in the Bible. Meaning, well, 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 what is like genie? Well, Jesus exists to ensure that I get all of the things that I want, that I ask for, that I need, or that my heart desires and then and then i don't get those things right or life does not go as planned or things do not happen as i asked for them and then i sit at the feet of jesus and i i essentially like i i reject any sense of lordship that he has in my life because he didn't give me the things that i thought that i needed when we don't get the things that we feel like or we don't get those things or we don't feel like jesus showed up in the way that we wanted him to or needed him to we reject him altogether as not as not involved in our lives or not present or not powerful enough or doesn't matter at all, to us. We treat Jesus like a spiritual vending machine, right? We walk up to Jesus once a week, we press the button of the thing that we need, and it better not get stuck in the little squirrely thing. Jesus is not a genie in the Bible, or a bottle. Third common expectation that we have of Jesus um is as is what i call buddy jesus this is probably um this is probably one of the more dangerous ones and the reason it's 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 dangerous is cuz it's partially true when we talk about buddy jesus meaning jesus as our our friend Right, puts his arm around us, and like is always like this, right? (laughs) Always smiling and double thumbs up in us, right? Right. We go to the movies together, right? And we shoot a, you know, we play around a golf, right? Or or we watch the game together. Jesus is my buddy. Jesus is my friend. And what oftentimes happens. Um, and, and the reason I say this is dangerous because it's, it's true, right? Jesus is present with us, even in those things that we feel are mundane, like playing around a golf or going to the movies, right? By the presence of His—I I don't play golf, but so I've heard—Jesus is probably there, right? Um, but Jesus is present, right, through the power of His Holy Spirit. He's in. He's, he's in us. But listen, I, I have a much different relationship um, with my friends only than I do with um, the Savior of the world, right? The agent of all creation, right? And And sometimes we treat the holiness of Jesus so flippantly, because we consider Jesus to, we 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 overdo the extent to which Jesus is our friend and underdue to the extent that Jesus is our Lord. And that and that our expression of faith in Him is a surrender of ourselves to the life of Jesus within us. Which is a life of surrendering my own desire, surrendering my own heart, surrendering my own expectations, laying myself on the altar of God's desire and call for who I am, and submitting myself ultimately and in every way, shape, and form to the Lordship of Jesus. I submit myself, I submit my speech to the Lordship of Jesus, I submit my relationships to the Lordship of Jesus. I submit my my thoughts. I submit my family. I submit my job. I submit my sin. I submit the things that I'm good at and the things that I am bad at. Everything falls at the feet and in submission to Jesus. He's not just your friend. He is also your Lord. And if we approach Jesus under the expectation, right, that there is no need for surrender because, hey, man, we're friends. It's like good times, buddy, buddy, right? We will be sorely, sorely, sorely disappointed. The expectations of the crowd on that day was that Jesus was coming in to be a certain kind of Lord, a certain kind of ruler, a certain kind of Messiah, a certain kind of king. And very, very few of them stopped to ask the question, right? Do my expectations of what I want Jesus to be in this moment? Do they align with what he actually came to do? And it's a, I think it's a wise and thoughtful exercise for you and I to ask the very same question. How am I expecting Jesus to show up In my life? What are the things that I am asking him to do? Who am I asking him to be? What am I wanting to, maybe uh, for lack of a better term, get out of my relationship with Jesus? What are the expectations that I have set for the ways in which Jesus lives in me and through me? and around me, and are all of the things that I'm asking Jesus to be in my life, or to do in my life, or all the ways that I'm asking him to show up in my life, are they aligned with the ways in which Jesus actually wants to change who I am? Because normally what I find is that we want Jesus to change our circumstances, but we're very slow to want Jesus to transform our hearts. Jesus wants to transform your hearts. Because out of the transformation of your hearts, you'll have different perspective on your circumstances. But even in the midst of, um, um, G, our Pastor Luke talked a few weeks ago about the way that Jesus interrupts our fear, All right? Right? And this is a perfect example right out of the life of Jesus or the example of Jesus about how big storm, right? Out on the boat, Jesus comes walking out onto the water, right? And Peter calls out to Jesus, Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come out to you. The waves crashing and the wind blowing and the rain coming down, right? Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come out to you. And and what does Jesus say? Jesus says, come. Right? Like he's he's looking to inspire the faith necessary for Peter to walk to him on the water here. But what's so interesting to me about that story is what Jesus, not what Jesus does, or even what Peter does, but what Jesus doesn't do. Because I could tell you every like. A real good tool to get Cameron to walk on the water would be to calm the storm. No more waves, right? Wind dies down. The rain stops. The water looks like glass, right? Okay, I'm with you now. Like, my expectations were that the circumstances around me were perfect for me to express faith in what you were calling me to. Got it. Here I come. Right? But Jesus doesn't do any of that. Right? He doesn't calm the storm first so that Peter feels comfortable stepping out onto the water. He just says, hey, come. He seeks to transform the nature of Peter's faith in him. He seeks to transform his heart before the circumstances are ever addressed. And what ends up happening? He picks Peter up out of the water, right? Gets back in the boat. The storm is calmed and everyone's like, this really is Jesus, I'm confident to say, Jesus has. Um, if Jesus is not totally destroying your expectations by the actual by his actual presence in your life, right, um, you may not be following him very closely. If Jesus is not just kind of like rerouting the di- like rerouting the passions of your heart and the dynamics of your relationship and the desire um and the, and the and the desire to be to a hurting world the loving presence of God then we may have some expectations about our time here or about our walk with him that Jesus wants to transform And here's the great news, right, is that that Jesus um, doesn't often present himself um, to those whose expectations are misaligned in a way where he's just going to like browbeat you with your incompetence until you understand who he really wants you to be, right? That there is a gentle wooing of the presence of Jesus in your life, to help lead you in a direction right where he's he's progressively transforming your heart through the power of your of his holy spirit through the presence and proclamation of his word through a community that is based on on the, like the a gospel of of grace right and if you are willing to allow him to transform your heart he will But if you are not willing, he won't. And it really, it really is that simple. It would be a lot easier if it was more complex to make sense of why we continue in perpetual states of pain and brokenness and destruction. Say, well, it's really complex. You know, I just like... It's actually really not. It's actually really not. My my hope, my prayer for you. Um, my prayer for you this week is that you you would ask God to reveal the expectations that you have of Him in Jesus. Like, Lord, how am I? Like, what do I expect of you and how am I coming to you? And that, and that you would, in the same breath, um, ask him to speak to you through his word, through his Holy Spirit, through a, through a godly man or woman or friend in your life, about who he actually is and who he desires to be in your life. I hope that you'll choose to join us um, on Good Friday as well, as we uh, talk about like the realities of what Jesus experienced in that final night and on the cross. Why is it, why it is important for um for us to to come together on Friday so that we can re come together on Sunday? Okay, uh, of course Easter Sunday is next week. Um, We'll have uh, we'll have some snacks for you or some refreshments. It will be a busy morning here, as you can as you can expect. So, um, if you love to come at like ten oh one and get your favorite seat, right? Um, you just talking about expectations. I want you to expect that you won't have that seat next week. All right. Um, but also understand that hey like listen just like we pray for you every week i'm praying for everyone that's not here right now that will be here next week right i'm going to ask you to pray for them um with me as well as we as we offer um the message of hope the message of life that is the gospel of jesus christ right um and um And we'll we'll all just have to be, sometimes, like, listen, I know, or like everyone says, well, you know, I'm here every week and this is where I like to sit and I have my parking spot and blah, 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 right? Um, Listen. (laughs) I get it, okay? I get it. But, But can we exude like a Jesus level of patience, maybe on Easter Sunday? Crazy idea, I know, right? Like, um, but can we like move over and welcome people into our presence and welcome them to the place where they can find, uh, where they can be, where 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 Jesus is made known to them, maybe in a very real way, like it's. It's just my, it's my desire, right? It's my heart. It's the heart of um, the staff and the, you know, Pastor Luke, myself, the leaders here at Condo, As I know that it is the heart of many of you, is that not that we protect the sanctity of knowing everyone's name in the room, but that we, that we pursue, Right? Not that you know everyone's name, but that everyone knows Jesus' name. That's why we're here, right? That's why we have a room to begin with, is so that every man, woman, and child would come to know who Jesus is, whether it's their first day here, whether it's their thousandth day here, whether they've never walked through the doors of the church before and are doing it because they were dragged, right? Or they're doing it because... Um, they they get this sense of God's calling on their life to pursue something greater and higher and bigger and more than than they were than they're experiencing outside of the community of faith. This is the this is the, if we try to create that environment and that space and that opportunity not to like say something so significant that it convinces them of the truth, right? But that we come and we create an environment that is safe enough that even for a moment, they let down the hardness that has protected them from the pain that they are holding. And in the moment where they let that down, we shove the gospel in it, right? And they hear for the first time that every that has been keeping them in this state of despair and hopelessness is answered in the life, death, and ministry of Jesus Christ. That the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to change everything for you and for them and for us. So that's like, I don't know, call that little like, Last five minutes, a little conduit family meeting. All right, um, and be praying for us um, as we as we prepare to welcome people into our home, which we hope is their home, right? And proclaim the message of Jesus. All right, let us let's let's pray as the worship team comes back up. Heavenly Father, we We thank you for your word to us. Lord, and I pray that either through me or in spite of me, the truth of your word would be proclaimed in such a way that our hearts would be transformed. Lord, I confess that I often come to you with some very clear expectations. Make me feel better, Lord make this situation go away fix this relationship stop that from happening lord and you know my heart and you know our hearts and oftentimes those prayers come from a place of sincerity and pure desire but lord i also know that there are often things that i do not see There are dynamics that I don't understand. There is work that you're doing in that situation, or there's work that you're doing in that person's life that couldn't be done or wouldn't be done in the same way, with the same results, if you just put an end to it or wiped it from the existence of my life. And so, Lord, I pray that in the midst of my expectations of you lord that you would change my heart lord that you would call that you would call us out onto the water with no regard for circumstance lord but only as a measure of our growing faith in you our growing trust in you Lord, we, we, we pray for... I pray, Lord, for every person in this room right now. Every man, woman, and child in this entire building. Jesus, that you would speak truth into their lives. That they would not leave this place feeling unloved even a little bit, Lord, but that they would receive a firm affirmation, Lord, of your deep and abiding love for them. Lord, any obstacles that the enemy is placing around this place in order to keep people from hearing the message of your gospel, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would tear them down. Any excuses that people are already con- concocting to keep them from next week hearing the message of the gospel, specifically, Lord. We pray that you would tear them down. Father, we pray that even though we can't actually multiply the seats in this room, Lord, that you would supernaturally multiply the seats in this room. So that more people, more ears, more hearts, more lives would hear the gospel that changes everything. That Jesus died, yes, but that he has risen and he will come again. The mystery of faith, Lord. Would you draw, Lord, all men, women, and children to Jesus as we glorify and honor and lift up his name in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.